Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The wild hair, the staggering incompetence, the string of errors. It's uh, it's clear that Boris Johnson's spirit footballer is is David Luiz. Welcome back to the front three. It's actually front two this week. Me and you, Lawrence. Sure. Two up top. Big man, little man. Yeah. How how are you? Any any news this week? Anything uh, important? Nothing big to your... nothing big to mention. Not apart no? from the baby comment. Not much oh, else to say. Yeah. Wow. Adam Junior on the way. This Adam Junior is on the. Uh, that's exa- was that exactly the same thing that you said when I told you the first time before you went on your. Probably. Uh, three month yeah. honeymoon. <laughs> when is Adam Jr. joining us? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or Adam, Shabby, Adam, I assume it could be Shabby. Could be. It's Shabby. It's Jurgen. It's. Uh, <laughs> There's many you names. Know, it's Roberto. It's Sadio. It's. <laughs> it's all the good ones. All of them have been rejected as names. <laughs> what a time to have have a baby. So congratulations, by the way. Thank I you. Say. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, obviously, this started pre lockdown, so this isn't some sort of, you know. Lockdown miracle. <laughs> right, okay, that's good to clarify. I do notice a lot of people are coming out looking a little porkier. You're like, oh right, okay, you're pregnant, <laughs> yeah. or what, what goes on? Uh, this was pre, this was pre, pre lockdown, yeah. So. Yeah, but and here we coming we, we, soon. Two weeks away. Two um, weeks, yeah, coming two weeks. soon. Yeah, not not long or any time from now. But I guess is the. So what they you'll say, be having your first child just as Liverpool win the league. I guess. I really hope that's what is going to happen. <laughs> what a year having your first baby uh, Liverpool winning the league the front three coming back I mean it's just it's a year to remember for you not only that I think the, the year that I was born was also the last time that <gasps> Liverpool won the league oh that's beautiful so, it's poetry you know, yeah it's crazy isn't it it feels amazing it's a, it's, it's a very exciting time it's a very exciting feeling so I can't wait for your present for the baby Paul <laughs> yeah, it was, I'll, I'll wait till Liverpool win the league before I uh, Great, before I send you. over the shirt with Adam Junior on the back. Yeah. So <laughs> Honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll I would still back. dress him in an Adam <laughs> Junior shirt as well. That'd be incredible. <laughs> um, we are of course going to talk Arsenal, Man City, David Luiz. Um, Chris is also going to be joining me later to talk Sheffield United, Aston Villa, as well as Marcus Rashford and the latest twist in the Newcastle takeover bid. Um, but first, Lawrence, I just wanted to ask you, uh, how was the experience of, of watching the Premier League? It's back, but it felt like an, an unusual experience, of course. Well, I, I, you know, when we first lost football, I sort of thought, okay, we soldier on and, uh, you know, we've got, got yeah, brave, yeah, brave me for wanting to watch football. Um, and then we did the first Front 3 podcast and you were so dejected and so sort of... Um, down and I thought okay it's a legit position but I couldn't I couldn't quite understand the the U-turn almost on you know Spurs are in the Champions League final this is going to be amazing I miss Pochettino 
And then the more that it went on, the more I thought, oh, actually, Bolt was making, for once, is making a really reasonable argument. It's rare. It's rare. Um, <laughs> or it's, you weren't even really making the argument for anything. You were just sort of saying how you felt. And it began to mm. resonate a bit more. And then it, it's not that I didn't enjoy doing the kickoff. The kickoff's really good fun to do. And, you know, it's a great show. It's really good to discuss things. But in two senses, it felt very weird because you're putting so much into football at a time when there is so much else going on. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I, I described it like this to you. If you've had an argument with someone, but then midway through the argument, you go, let's just step away, give ourselves five minutes to breathe and relax. It's a very similar vibe to when you are, um, when you're in football, when the season is intense, when you're like, oh my God, them players must be knackered. You know, the, the manager's got to be thinking tactically, how can we turn all this around? And then suddenly you're given three months to go, well, maybe we should work on this. Maybe the players should physically work on it's as the intensity of that moment is gone and mm. you realize, oh, right, okay, you can't just continue a league out of thin air. And also, mm. obviously, you know, without fans in the stadium, there's a different vibe. Even if they want to play football noise over the top, which they accidentally play football noise over the top, even when a player is injured, so the fans are still cheering. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and not only that, but, uh, you know, he's laying on the ground and you've got that wall of fans in the background and they're just sort of being told to, like, cheer at the camera. And you're like, <laughs> why are you doing quite this? Surreal, yeah, quite bizarre. Yeah, it was a very, it's very, uh, it's like uh, dystopian mm. almost. And, um, you know, it, it's given people lots of opportunity to also step back and go, you know, do we want football like this or do we want like that? And it's when you start going, oh, is this really as good as I thought, I guess? Yeah, I kind of, I'm still torn on it because I think there is that aspect of we've all become a little bit desensitized to this pandemic. Right. And at the moment, there are still people dying every single day, hundreds of people in, in England dying every single day. And it feels it almost doesn't feel right to be to be focusing on something as ultimately disposable as yeah. football at the same time i, I understand why it's back i understand why it's come back and it is a distraction at the end of the day and a welcome distraction i quite enjoyed watching the games i watched them without the crowd noise i yeah. found it quite calm you said you wouldn't enjoy no, it no i i quite enjoyed watching them i don't think i'd have watched them to be honest if we weren't podcasting if i'd have to talk about them okay. <laughs> i don't think i'd have bothered sure but there was something quite almost serene about watching this. This it was it was essentially there were preseason matches. They felt like not only in the tempo and quality of the games, but just the the atmosphere. Do you think it was also the nature of the? Do you think it was also those games specifically? Oh, yeah. I mean... that it was like it was Aston Villa versus Sheffield United, and you know Arsenal, Man City. They weren't. They didn't blow yeah. the doors off, did they? No, I think. Um... A nil-nil draw in that first game was to be expected, and, and Arsenal being walked all It wasn't all a nil-nil nil draw, Boltwood. It wasn't Sorry, a nil-nil draw. Yes, it, it was one nil in an alternate universe, shall we say. Um, before we talk about Arsenal City, we obviously we've been talking in recent weeks about Black Lives Matter. We've been talking about the movement, its impact on the game. Yes. Um, what did you make of the the gesture, the statement? before both the Sheffield United Aston Villa game and the Man City Arsenal game where the players took the knee after the whistle was blown because it received a lot of coverage. It seemed, it did seem significant. It, um, it, it looked and was a very iconic moment. I think it must be incredibly gratifying for someone like Colin Kaepernick, who is, um, he's been fighting for how long now? I don't know. Um, you know, four, over, four, over four two years, is it? Yeah. Yeah. 
I think maybe the, the point there is his life is has uh, been a bit of a fight, which oh, is why he's felt so. But you know, but yeah, like you say, four years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, the other side is it also brought out all the people who online were saying, "Well, why are they doing this? You know, what's the point? You know, can't they keep politics out of football, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And it, it whilst it felt unifying for people who were already who were the choir that was being preached to. It seems there is being another choir assembled that wants to sing another song. And, you know, it was a lovely moment. And I imagine that's great for those players. They, they, you know, it could be a very meaningful gesture. But ultimately, without anything changing, without people changing their attitudes, it will, it will, it could look in history like an empty um, moment. I wonder, in that sense. I hope it does change attitudes because not only did we have uh, the statement at the start of the game, and I assume all the other games, at least in this first round of Premier League fixtures, will follow suit. But you've also got yeah. Black Lives Matter on the back of the players' shirts, obviously. Just this round, so let's bear that in mind. Yeah, I think that I think this should have been for the rest of the season, if I'm honest. Yeah, I believe they keep the badges on their on their arms okay. for the rest of the for the rest of the season, as well as obviously the NHS badge as well. But um, we've been talking about how we want to see sort of tangible action, tangible initiatives off the back of this movement. It feels like. We are going to see that because we've just seen Marcus Rashford almost single-handedly change government right. policy using his yeah. platform, using his voice to do so. We've seen Raheem Sterling be very outspoken in recent weeks. And I think he's becoming a leader of this movement in the UK and has put forward his own campaign about time for change. He released a video on social media on Tuesday, I believe. Um with a number of, of, of players. And I believe the initiatives that are going to come from that campaign will be about addressing the lack of black, Asian and, and minority ethnic figures in leadership roles in football. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be change affected there. I think that it would be churlish almost to describe it as... as what, just like a, a, an empty corporate gesture, basically? Yeah, is, because I, yeah. I think it is something that brings a lot of attention to the movement. And I think it is something very positive from the Premier League, but also it's organic. I think the, Raheem Sterling came out after the game and said, you know, we saw Aston Villa and the Sheffield United players do that before the game. We wanted to follow suit. Obviously, we've seen players like Troy Deeney and, and Wes Morgan speak out. It feels like something that's much more generated by the players as mm -hmm. opposed to a gesture imposed by the Premier League, as you're saying, as, as some sort of empty corporate move. So yeah, I'm hoping... Absolutely. Yeah, that it inspires others or it's kind of a platform almost for awareness that brings change. It's, it's at least starting a conversation. And I think, um, you know, it's, it, it was never going to be, like we said, it's a process. People will take time to understand some of this stuff. I also think that, it, you know, you are going to have to crack a few eggs to make an omelette. And so some people are going to get a bit upset by this. Um, and, you know, it's almost a case of so be it, because I think that's where I always go back to Colin Kaepernick and think, okay, if we're saying this in this moment, looking back in two years, how proud will you be of what you said? Or how proud will you be of what you did? Um, because, you know, looking back on what Colin Kaepernick did now, the number of angles or hot takes that the news had where it was like, you know, with, like with LeBron, shut up and dribble. You know, like with him, why is he taking a knee? It's disrespectful. All those people look so outdated, so outmoded now. Um, and that's kind of what I want to see with the movement. I want to see gestures that we look back, you know, not only gestures, but action that we look back on and go, that was good action. It was, that's why, you know, you feel like the Marcus Rashford action 
is something that even a day after you go, that was brilliant, you know? So uh, I think that's the kind of action I'm looking for here. Something that you, it's almost, you get that feeling when you look at it in your heart, rather than thinking there's a difference between a PR gesture and what, and, you know, an open, uh, something that's really fantastic. And you get a different feeling. When you, when you see a good PR gesture, you go, oh, good. When you see something that is, yeah, when you see something that is genuinely meaningful and is actually life-changing in that sense, you might not want to break down and cry, but I think you relate to it in a different way. And that's why I think so many, it, the Marcus Rashford uh, initiative mm-hmm. has taken so many, uh, you know, so many people on, on with it. Yeah, I think I think we'll look back at that in a couple of years' time, and it will feel even more seismic than it does now because Correct. of the influence and the impact that he's had there. And as you say, I don't think media commentators or, or anyone will be able to say, "Ah, oh, these players should just stick to football. They shouldn't use their yeah. platform for politics. They shouldn't discuss these things." Because we've seen, as I said, we've made a football player make the government do such a U-turn on on policy. That- I think it's, that that's also so mixed in with um, so many other so many other tropes and social tropes that we know. Like, for instance, you know, a lot of the a lot of young black players get attacked in the media for buying their mum a car or for mm-hmm. all these kind of things. And Raheem Sterling, especially, has been through that. I imagine he's also done a lot of private charity work. But it was then the fact that Rashford was not only doing something good for charity, but he wasn't just turning up with a big, you know. Uh, corporate check that you can stand for a photo <laughs> a with check, yeah. it felt like a leadership sort of moment and I imagine mm. that would feel quite unusual for a lot of people who are not used to seeing young uh, black men in such kind of positive positions mm. and portrayed in such a way so again it's the portrayal of those kind of guys uh, you know young guys who are not necessarily from you know the uh, private school community that are doing something positive for the the community mm. To talk a little bit about the football then, um, as I said, it did feel a bit like a training match. It was Man City v Arsenal oh, yeah. in the end. I think the the it's the second time this season they've beat Arsenal 3-0. Yeah. It felt oh, like a why bit did of a... it feel like a tra- Surely it should have been 8-0 if it was a training <laughs> match then, Bob. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It did feel a bit pedestrian though. I think it was quite comfortable for Man City. They did play some sensational football though. It didn't feel like they really had to get out of first gear, especially after yeah. David Luiz was sent off. It, it was easy for it was um, it was frustrating because I looked at the Arsenal team with Hugh on the kickoff, and you you just looked at the names and you thought, I I know what the result's going to be. These guys are mm. going to go out, they're going to run at Man City, they'll get dejected very quickly, and then Man City will take over. And that's almost exactly what happened in the game. The, the players got very dejected. They realised that there was a gulf in either class and also fitness, and suddenly it was like, right, well that's it then, just give up. Mm. And it was this, it was almost Spursy from Arsenal. You know, I'm not no, being mean. No, but, no, it was, it was um, very Arsenal. You can't even. It, it was very imagine. Arsenal. Yeah. Um, but it was, it, it, you know, it was that dejected. It was something that I, I turned to Roven, who we, who does the camera for the show. And I was like, that would never have happened with the Invincibles. I thought that was the Arsenal club identity. You know, that, and that was so this, recent as well. Yeah, this is the Arsenal of the last 10 years. Is I think what's, what's worrying... Why are you smiling? So why are you smiling? Uh, I love it. You love to see it, Lawrence. Brilliant. Um, I think, you know, Arsenal have been so poor for a long time. And when Arsene Wenger did finally leave the club, I was worried. You know, Unai Emery's coming in. This is a manager with European pedigree. Sure. They're going to sort out their, their transfer policy. He's going to bring in a new system. 
Arsenal are going to be challenging Spurs again. Could they finish above Spurs? You know, it was worrying times. Um, And even Arteta, you know, even though it went wrong for Emery, I think Arteta is a fantastic, promising young coach. And there is that aspect of, uh, could he be the man to to finally sort Arsenal out? Um, However, looking at that performance and looking at the Arsenal squad overall, I think he has a massive task on his hands in terms of rebuilding and retooling this team to be able to compete. Um, I would be shocked if David Luiz hasn't played his last game for the club. Uh, Meza Ozil also Mm -hmm. seems on his way out. You've got Aubameyang, you've got Lacazette, who seem to be agitating for a move. So it's a really tough time, I think, that's coming up um, for Arsenal, which is great to see. Um, And it was great to see David Luiz doing David Luiz things uh, in an Arsenal shirt as well. I guess, is there an element... I did look at the football and think, OK, I can at least see some seeds of what they're trying to do here. And uh, your eye smile says no. Even if you can see what Arteta's trying to do on the pitch, I think they've got such a huge rebuilding job on their hands this summer. Like a lot of other clubs, are they going to have to sell before they can buy? Is that true? Because there was an article yesterday that said they had a lot of money to spend because of the saving they've done over the last few years. Yeah, I just from from what I understand or what I expect to see this summer, and we've seen that as we discussed with with Timo Werner and Liverpool. I don't expect teams to make huge splurges or huge purchases. Do you, then, do you think that even having a minimal amount of money to spend, be that you know a uh, hundred million, be that one hundred and fifty million, we will see uh, them being able to get out ahead of other people because. I, I think also the main problem for them is they don't have, you know, if you looked at the Chelsea team and Chelsea wanted to buy or upgrade a player, I'd say they have a number of players that you could offer there and go, look, we can trade you this guy and, you know, 20 or 30 million and you've got the equivalent of a 50 million package there. Arsenal, you look at that side and you go, hmm, who there is worth trading? Who there is worth without, you know, taking away from the talent of the team? Who there would I go, yeah, I'll take him. Yeah, I won't take him. Who there is worth um, investing in from a club like Bayern Munich, from a club like Juve or from any mid-level club? And you worry that Arsenal don't have the scouts in place to be able to go out there and get, uh, you know, a, a player that they need because they've, they've signed Pepe, who hasn't hit the ground running, who has struggled at the club for a lot of money. And they've alienated one of the few figures at the club that you would have thought, weirdly, you know, post-COVID and post what we're seeing with Black Lives Matter as well, and I don't mean this to group everyone in as one, but the the stand that Ozil took um, with regards to China and the way Mm. that they treat a certain uh, element of the the Muslim population over there, and also the fact that Ozil has been seen as a bit of a political activist, be that around the Germany team, et cetera, et cetera. If that Arsenal team had lent into that, and, uh, you know, said, we back our guy, he's a leader within the team, we get his voice. You might have someone who felt strengthened by that, someone who felt, right, I'm in an environment where people care about me. I'm in an environment where, you know, not only are the club paying for my skills, but they're also paying for the kind of person that I am, which is, you know, the emotional investment that some people need, which you imagine Ozil would have liked to have felt. But instead, he got alienated. And you just think there's not one point where it seems like Arsenal dealt well with any of their management of the players. And maybe Arteta is going to begin to change that. You know, you can see moments. I also thought what was great was there was huge frustration 
because they'd done so well to keep it to nil-nil and being able to break on Man City. And it was two stupid mistakes from David Luiz moments of, <laughs> so this is... <laughs> you know, comedy, which let them down. And but you could see the players around him were pissed off. But this is the, the David Luiz situation fascinating because, yeah, two mistakes that led to the goal, ascending off after coming on as a sub. He was only on the pitch for 25 minutes, I believe. Not long enough, yeah. So... Absolutely incredible, vintage David Luiz performance. <laughs> Hugely entertaining. It was, it was great to watch. Do you but, not feel um, sorry for David Luiz a little bit? I do feel a little bit sorry for David Luiz, and it made you think. It made you think. Okay, this is a player who's clearly technically gifted. I think there's yeah. a lot of admiration for him in the game. I've seen players and managers speak very highly of him and his skills. However, I think most people would agree that. The best we saw of David Luiz was that 2016-2017 season when he was at Chelsea. Antonio Conte was the manager. He reportedly wanted to get rid of David Luiz, didn't want him in his team. Um, But he came across the realisation that, okay, if you play him in a back three, you put him in the middle, he doesn't have the same defensive responsibilities. He's not leading the line in terms of of holding the line. He can bring the ball out from defence. He can concentrate on what he's good at. And the other players around him will compensate for his his obvious <laughs> defensive frailties. Yeah. Now, he's never been played in a back three since that I could see. I think Arsenal have played in a back three once this season. When he's in a back four, when he is relied upon as the leader, the most experienced of a, of a central defensive partnership, it doesn't work. And there's mountains really of evidence to yeah. suggest <laughs> it doesn't work. So it perplexes me as to why Arsenal persist with him. And what was even more perplexing was Luis coming out after the game, uh, unusually kind of fronting up to the cameras, saying uh, the, the defeat is my responsibility. The coach is fantastic. The team are fantastic. This entire defeat's on me. He said that he wants to stay. He said that Arteta wants him to stay, which I just find hard Uh-oh. to understand and hard to, hard to process because they've got William Saliba coming in next season. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a great young centre-back, someone who Spurs were after last year. They've got someone that they could potentially build their their defensive formation around. Why do you still need David Luiz? He doesn't bring anything on the pitch. Experience, I'm not sure that there's any there's any value it's, there. It's, it is fascinating, though, isn't it? When you, when you look at the, the way that a team is built, it's almost like, you know, you can't just build a team consisting purely of young players. You do need some players in there that will lead that side. And I get it. Like, you know, we, we always say, you know, people are nat- some people are natural born leaders, blah, 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 in- implying that there is this inherent side of it. I think when you look at all of the best players, they have all been alongside another great player at some point in their life um, or been enabled by a coach who's really changed them. Mm. And I think that's part of the problem is that you know, David Luiz played well under Conte, I think, at times. He also played well under Rafa Benitez before that in the defensive midfield position. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then you look at who Arsenal are bringing in and you think, OK, this is good. You've got a good signing there. But what made Joe Gomez a better player was playing alongside Virgil van Dijk. Mm-hmm. What made Trent Alexander-Arnold a better player <laughs> was playing alongside another great, you know, some great centre-backs and learning from the great uh, defensive players yeah. at Liverpool. What made uh, <laughs> the, all these guys good was being either forged in the fire or um, being alongside someone great. They could go, right, that is what you do there. Okay. And 
it doesn't seem like there is enough of that going on in the Arsenal system at the moment. No, David Luiz needs to be guys... like next to someone like Virgil yeah. van Dijk in order to get the best out of him, where it should be the other way around. But that's yeah. why it's you. You worry about Arsenal. I saw Raphael Honigstein tweet out, "How is Arsenal's buying players from friendly agents strategy going?" Which is exactly what David Luiz was. You know, this was not an astute purchase and. <laughs> a lot of people were questioning it at the time, not only because of the the on the pitch failings, but also about his character off the pitch. You know, he's he's, I'm sure, a lovely guy, and as I say, many players and many coaches have spoken highly of him. But it's no secret that both Frank Lampard and Antonio Conte saw him as a disruptive influence, and that's ultimately why he left Chelsea. So the alarm bell should have been ringing for Arsenal. Now they've got this contract situation on their hands with him. Again, I said, I'd be sh- again, I'd be shocked if they renewed his contract, although it seems Mikel Arteta wants to. They've also got this Ozil situation rumbling on. You know, are they going to be able to shift a player who's on £350,000 a week? Are we still going to be having the same conversation next season about why he's been left out of the squad? He hasn't been the same in the last couple of years on the pitch. Um, Aubameyang does Aubameyang want to stay when we say you know do you exactly want to people, I think Aubameyang like, could be gone Lacazette like like could be gone so I know they've got young players there I know they've got Rice I know they've got Saka Martinelli promising young talent but are they going to be able to to rebuild and retool in a way that they can still challenge not for the Champions League I don't think that's even realistic even for the Europa League in the next couple of seasons because the revenue even from that competition I think given everything that's happening in this pandemic is going to be so crucial for clubs like Arsenal. When you see Chelsea signing two top-class players like Werner, like Ziyech for £50 million, I think their place in the top four next season is assured. I don't think that Spurs are miles away from competing in that top five. I just think it's, it's a worrying time for Arsenal because... They've got a very tough summer, a very tough couple of years, I think, ahead of them in order to maintain or rebuild to a position where they can challenge for. Worrying for times in London. Worrying, Worrying times. times in Whereas in the, north, in the northwest, we are thriving. We are yes. loving the fact that you London lads, you, you southern softies are having such a hard time. That's yeah. the problem for you. I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how Spurs get on, on, on Friday night against... Manchester United, I think that's going to be a bit of an acid test, shall we say, because I'm feeling slightly optimistic. Uh, Harry Kane's back, Suzuko's back, Son's back. Um, it is a big game. I think I'm not expecting a good result. I think it may well confirm or may well um, dash any faint hopes of Spurs getting into the top four this season. I think we're seven points adrift at the moment. Yes. Um, we need to win that game on Friday night to have any chance, but I don't think it's going to happen. Do you, <laughs> I think, do you we might. think there, th- this is maybe the game that we sort of need in a sense where it's Mourinho, it's uh, Solskjaer, it's Manchester United, you know, there's a lot of emotion involved. There's, you know, Manchester United really need to get back on course. Or do you, do you think it's the opposite? It, it's got the potential to go extreme one way or the other. Mourinho, we, we either see Mourinho go, yeah, we've given up on the season, who cares? Like if they lose, that's the narrative. You know, well, it's obviously the break's been difficult. And if they win, you go, this is the moment we capitalise. It's weird. I think it's going to be a really interesting one. That and just in terms of actually this new this new normal, this new normal Premier League, this game right. and the Merseyside derby, I think going to be really interesting in terms of mm-hmm. without the fans, it does feel a bit alien, doesn't it? It feels like there's no stakes or there's no drama. You don't have that noise and you don't have that that sense of atmosphere. I'm intrigued to see if big games like Tottenham, Man United, where there's 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 
actual stakes in terms of who can finish in top four, who can qualify for Europe, obviously for Liverpool as they get close to that Premier League title. I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, in terms of Spurs and Man United, I think obviously Solskjaer, I think still has a lot to prove. Mm-hmm. If he can get Manchester United in the top four this season and he'd go a long way to towards confirming that, I think with a win on Friday, I think that would be a real boost for him and kind of definitely cement him for next season because there's still those question marks there. Um, in terms of Spurs, I think... Most people are feeling quite optimistic. That seems to be the general yeah, attitude among Spurs fans. But I just cannot get away from the fact that Jose Mourinho is our manager. I know there was the whole PR sort of offensive when he came in at the club. And there was this idea that he's a new man. I think we've seen with his really? treatment of of young players like Tangi and Dombele that that's not really the case in terms of the football we're seeing on the pitch to kind of very hopeful and very reductive long ball game it's not hugely encouraging we'll see what it's like when when Harry Kane's back because I think that was a huge miss for Spurs and I think you know Mourinho has been ham- hamstrung somewhat by injuries and and the situation he's been in picking up a team who was so low after after Mauricio Pochettino sacking and so exhausted after five years mm-hmm. of Mauricio Pochettino both mentally and physically but um yeah it's it's hard I'm trying not to judge Mourinho until next season until he's got a full campaign under his belt, but the signs are not massively encouraging, so we say. But hopefully yeah, on Friday like we can put in, at this point. Yeah, hopefully on Friday we can put in a performance. Hopefully there's 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 signs and, and cause for optimism. It's, we'll see. I it's think so it, funny. You're getting <laughs> sucked back in. I'm getting sucked back in. in. We'll see. I think, um, as I say, I wouldn't have watched these games yesterday if it wasn't for for the podcast. But I will watch Spurs. Um, and I'm intrigued to see how I how I sort of feel after the game or, or wanna, what my reaction is. Do you want to watch together over Zoom and then I can see what your reaction is and describe? Can I? Yeah, I think I'll just be sitting there blankly as, as goal after goal get get scored by Manchester. What, what do you think and... about what do you think about all of these? Uh, you know, these fans sitting at home looking down the camera and sort of you know cheering the team on, and then I mean Sky have launched then. You know, I love I love. Uh, the, the guys who work with Sky, lovely people, but I'm not 100% sure that mm. I'm sold or any, you know, obviously we do the kickoff, which is a live reaction show. Anyone who does live reaction mm. show, credit to, you know, Elliot Hackney started his one, Mark Goldbridge has done his, <laughs> Dave did one for a little while, you know, God bless his socks. And it, little, little moments uh, where you realize that it takes a bit more than just sitting and reacting. And Last night after the show, we were obviously, you know, we were going through what was happening online. And there was a screenshot of what Sky had put out, which is the match with four Skype images next to it. And the runner on the show just turned to me and said, people pay for this. And I was like, yeah, actually, that's a really good point. People are paying a subscription fee to see Sean Gota react to a goal with... That's partly where I'm a bit like, you know, the, put it this way, Boltwood, I still get this feeling and, you know, it's, it's been building and building and building that the Premier League is being left behind in terms of um, innovation and initiative without, uh, yeah. you know, and take Marcus Rashford out of the picture and, and mm-hmm. you know, that, that great moment. And really, is football in Britain affecting the change that it can? I'm taken back to the 60s when I look at inspirational managers like Bill Shankly and, and how he invigorated a whole city of people. I'm sort of taken to what Jurgen Klopp has now 
But I, uh, you know, and I'm you're kind of taken to Pep or maybe a Mourinho re- more recently. Maybe Mourinho was the last time that we really felt that way. But truly, have we seen the innovation in football like we've seen in the NBA, like we've even seen in the way that UFC were trying to push to find a way to fight, even though there's, you know, the pandemic on NFL, uh, you know, MLB uh, uh, seem to be stuck in the past as well. They seem to be almost not wanting to uh, play Mm -hmm. or they want to play a much shorter season. People are complaining about it. I'm a little bit worried that football is being found out for not quite uh, being as forward thinking as we'd love to think it is. And actually, Mm. it's again, we stepped away from the game and we thought, um, you know, oh God, like without fans, it isn't the same. You know, oh, actually, when you step away from it, are we really as invested as we thought? Why aren't we thinking that about the actual organisations? And, you know, the I'm not going to go to the Premier League, but, you know, the Premier League itself, I think, is sometimes hamstrung by the fact that Sky are their, you know, main broadcaster in the UK because it takes forever to get something through that corporate bureaucracy. And all these kind of things where I, I'm, it leaves me frustrated because, you know, while Sky are launching a show where four people Skype each other, and everyone's congratulating anyone for making a new show. And I get it. I love, I love Joe Tomlinson. I really like Smithy. I'm not saying the presenters on the show. I'm saying the actual concept itself frustrates me as someone who's online and is trying that, you know, works hard every week to try and bring a product that is as good as TV or is trying to get to that level. Yeah, I think, I think you make a great point in terms of it's hard not to to bemoan almost, as you say, the lack of innovation when it's been three months of no football. We've all been waiting for the football to come back. And I think, yeah, to come back with that product is not particularly mm-hmm. inspiring. To me, I know we've mentioned on this podcast, football feels less essential than ever. And I think there could have been much more of a push and much more of an effort by the Premier League and the broadcasters to make football feel essential in what is essentially this kind of this this mini tournament. And I think there is an aspect for me, there's there's something I can't deny that there is an appeal to not only this sort of condensed Premier League schedule, it's, it's a feast of football, it's football on every day. The Champions League they announced in August is going to be straight knockout now. It's going to be exciting. I think that could be really exciting. Yeah. But at the same time, as you say, when you actually watch the games and you're... Yeah you're really missing that that fan atmosphere and that sense of, of drama and stakes. That sense of occasion, the sense of it being like, you know, even when I looked at it the other night, I, you know, when you look at a stadium, a stadium even as a structure is built to contain excitement and people and noise. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, well, really the reason we're here is because it's got the pitch there and, you know, and the changing rooms. And at that point, it's sort of reduced to the, it's almost like a, a leisure centre that's too big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's frustrating to look at because, you know, they, they do all the shots yeah. from a distance. It's like, oh, this is surreal. It feels a bit po- post-apocalyptic almost. But it, I, I don't know. I, you know, that's why I love what the NBA is doing in the sense they're going somewhere else. They're going to try and change the product. I'd love to see what camera angles they get and all these kind of things. The NBA was already ahead of the Premier League in terms of what they shot. You know, there's a there's a, a, two or three phantom cameras at every game, every night. And you think, okay, so they're shooting all this in super slow motion. They make all these little mini docs around it. They get the insight. All of these things in the Premier League and in England in general seem a bit outmoded. But because everyone's making, and this is part of the problem, everyone goes, well, the market writes itself, doesn't it? Well, it's like, there is no market here. This is a monopoly of football. And there is no competition for us. And 
we keep talking down the competition, which is a European Super mm. League or is, you know, should the championship be some way uh, talked up in some way? Should we be marketing that differently? This is just a, a load of guys who got comfortable. And what's weird about it is in America, it actually seems to work. It's like, right, well, the NBA, that is just mm. the thing. It's how are they always moving forward then? It, with NFL, how are they always moving forward? How is the product always having to get better? And it's because there's monopoly in the game, but then there's actual... Uh, outside of that and surrounding that good competition in terms of broadcasting coverage in terms of all these different mm, things it's breeding innovation we don't have we do not have what would the innovative country that we thought we had <laughs> did you not enjoy arsenal fan tv's uh watch along is that what you're saying Nick? i saw it <laughs> i thought it looked like these were people who would be waiting to get checked into some sort of low-end hospital. There was a... This was a worrying uh, amount of flesh on the show from some of these people. There was a a fantastic tweet that said it looked like a a Wes Anderson film where five astronauts are trapped in space. (laughs) That was was bang on. That was perfect. It really... (laughs) There's one thing I can give them credit for. It's the symmetry of the shot. Yeah, it was beautiful. Well done, Robbie. That that was what it was. That's innovation, Lawrence. That's what we need. Yeah, yeah, I I forgot. I almost completely forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, You stand corrected. I think it's fair. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So joining me now is Mr. Chris Hennage. Chris, how are you? I'm not bad, thanks, mate. How are you? Good, I'm good. Uh, we're going to talk about Sheffield United, Aston Villa, as well as Marcus Rashford and the Newcastle takeover bit. Um, but first, let's talk about that that first game that kicked off the return of the Premier League. Uh, not the most inspiring start, not the most explosive start. Nil-nil, yeah. it finished in the end, but it should have been one-nil, Chris. Obviously, that very controversial goal line decision is all anyone's talking about. Uh, what did you make of it when you were watching the game? Um, you know what? At first, I thought genuinely, oh, I must have missed something here. Um, because as I saw in real time, you can see Michael Oliver taps to his watch as he's talking to the, the Sheffield United players, saying, you know, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't receive a buzz or there wasn't a notification. Um, so, yeah, I just assumed something was wrong. And then obviously you watch it back and it's painfully obvious that it's, it's well inside the goal that he's practically carried it in as Nyland. Um, and yet that's when you jump to the thought of technology and, well, if the goal line decision system hasn't picked it up, surely VAR has looked at it once and gone, yeah, it's a goal. So let's quickly um, inform the ref of that. 
Have they explained why VAR didn't bring it back in order to contest that decision? Because we had the explanation from Hawkeye, which was interesting in of itself. So they apologized after the game. They acknowledged that the ball had gone over the line. They said it was the first time that such an error had occurred in more than 9,000 matches using the system. And essentially that despite there being seven cameras monitoring the goal, this was a one in 9,000 happenstance where the goal was obscured by the goalkeeper, the defender, and the goalpost, (laughs) which was uh, not the best explanation because we could all see it uh, from the camera angle we were looking at on television. But despite all that, as you were sort of saying, why, why, why didn't the VAR necessarily bring it back? Have we heard an explanation for that? Um, I'm going to trust the the fine folk at footy accumulators. Um, in case it's a, <laughs> a standing gentleman. Um, PGMOL statement on VAR not giving the Sheffield United goal is as follows. Under the IFAB protocol, the VAR is able to check goal situations. However, due to the fact that the on-field match officials did not receive a signal, and the unique nature of that, the VAR did not intervene. So I, I guess just as simple as that, they couldn't get a text message through or the call through or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's hard to wrap the head around. And obviously Chris Wilder after the game was furious because it is potentially going to have a huge impact on their chance of qualifying for Europe. That was their game in hand. And it's just, it is quite embarrassing considering that's the first game back everyone's tuned in around the world to watch the return of the Premier League and we have not only a slightly underwhelming game but an an unforgivable decision ultimately yeah wilder by name wilder by nature Um, (laughs) I I think what will undoubtedly frustrate him more is that Sheffield United have been on the end of some VAR calls this season where the John Joe Shelby goal at Bramall Lane where VAR was applied correctly but the referee flagged and it was a whole kind of confusion and that and it seemed to work when it was going against or when it was at the detriment of, of Sheffield United. I think there was an instance against Tottenham as well maybe that you can remind me of. And if they had had <clears throat> those two points, just for argument's sake, they leapfrog Man United on an equal number of games and you could argue mm-hmm. at that point it becomes all in their hands to to potentially secure fifth. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a massive slip off at, at half time. I thought they seemed to be taking it quite well. The, the lot of them um, in the sense that everyone was laughing and joking, which surprised me, but I think, uh, yeah, I think this is definitely one that will, I wouldn't say heads will roll, but I think there will be some <laughs> flapped wrists in an office or two. <laughs> For sure. Um, I want to talk to you about Marcus Rashford as well, because mm-hmm. he is now a shoo-in for not only sports personality of the year, but apparently Prime Minister. The guy's a national hero now, Chris. Uh, if you have, haven't seen the news um, to our listeners out there, so essentially in England, uh, about 1.3 million children in England are now going to be able to claim free school meal vouchers in the summer holidays after a campaign by Marcus Rashford, during the lockdown, the government had said that the vouchers they were providing to families, they weren't going to continue that outside of term time. Rashford led the campaign to reverse that decision. They wrote an open letter to MPs calling for a U-turn, and he won. And it's fantastic secrets because it's exactly what we've been talking about in recent weeks in terms of players using their influence, using their voice, using their platform to affect change. And this is an incredible example of that. Something obviously is very close to Marcus Rashford's heart. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think he grew up in a in a single parent household, so this is something that really hits home for him. I think it's tremendous to see a footballer use their platform in such an influential way um, to be as determined as he was, I think, to get this through and to get this done. And you know what? I, I found actually his words in the wake of the decision equally as profound in terms of him pointing out that this is not about politics. This is not about Labour and Conservative. This is about what he views England could be. And I think that's wonderful. Um, I think for me personally, it is a pretty damning indictment on the current government that essentially Marcus Rashford had to argue that it was worth feeding hungry children. Um, yeah. And and that I appreciate that some, if not all of our listeners don't really come to us for politics, are probably a little bit tired of, of that aspect of things maybe in some quarters. <laughs> but, but that's really what it boils down to is that a Premier League footballer, you know, the number 10 for Manchester United enacted more change than the number 10 at, at Downing Street. Yeah, it's, it's hard to avoid it. I understand what you're saying. But when someone like Rashford, a role model like that, and a footballer has such a, an impact, as you say, and has done more than the actual people in number 10, it's hard to ignore. And it was very funny as well to see politicians like Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock congratulating Marcus Rashford for putting the pressure on their government to reverse their own policy decision. I think yeah. uh, Johnson praised Rashford for his contribution to the debate around poverty <laughs> which was just quite funny to see but um it's something that Rashford has been championing all summer mm-hmm. he's also been working with charities who who work to relieve food poverty and he's teamed up with them to raise I think it's over 20 million pounds to provide children across Manchester with food yeah. if they were eligible for free school meals while they're in school which has now become a national initiative so he's achieved a hell of a lot in lockdown which is as I say amazing to see um yeah, he's he's done. You know, he's done a lot of charitable works as it relates to toxic behaviour online as well. Um, and I think you look at Raheem Sterling and how at the start of this pandemic, if you can use that as a as a point in time, you know, Matt Hancock, Matt Hancock was talking about the need for footballers to step up, and that phrase I think has really been shoved down his throat because I think footballers have stepped up well above and beyond what we would expect from them and and Rashford for me embodies that in in terms of what he's done and what he has contributed to to bettering people's lives in very simple terms and and that's where I think we are right to point to where football gets it wrong where football needs to improve but I look at things like at least on on a more personal level the food bank outside St James's Park I know that's not an isolated situation there's ones I think on Merseyside as well um Football does a lot of good as well, I think, and it's worth acknowledging that and, and appreciating the contribution of the sport for, for people mm. that are unfortunately less off. I think it's great to see the players as well, because I know in this this whole pandemic started there, as you say, there were a lot of politicians who, who were taking swings at footballers because it's an easy target, essentially. But as you say, I'm not sure it's football necessarily that has shown the good they've done. I think what's great is the players. So they came together, obviously, this whole players initiative, the the huge fund they put together for NHS Together Charities led by Jordan Henderson. That's a fantastic initiative in his own right. As you mentioned, Raheem Sterling stepping up. And again, with Marcus Rashford, all the work he's doing for charity. It's great to see these players who are obviously maligned 
so often in the press and and among the public in England because of the huge wages they earn, actually doing something positive with their, pla- with their platform. And I hope it does pave a way for other players to step up and speak out on issues that are important to them and hopefully impact real change beyond the game itself. So it does make you think, you, you do wonder what you've what you've achieved in lockdown. We're talking about how much Rashford's achieved there. I think I've maybe learned three chords on my guitar. Nice. I learned how to make some banana bread. I nice. think I got pretty good at Call of Duty. I guess we relaunched this podcast, but has there been anything you've achieved in, uh, in lockdown, Chris, to rival Marcus Rashford's uh, achievements? No, not really. Um, I mean, this is going to be a spotlight on my lack of uh, activities during lockdown. Um, no, I've not. I've not learned to bake banana bread, so that's something you're gonna have to teach me at some point. <laughs> I think you're probably the only person who hasn't. To be fair, um, let's finish by talking about Newcastle because there does seem to be another twist in this tale, um, a dubious twist potentially, but it's being re- being reported by Sky Sports. It's being reported by the Guardian that there could potentially be another late bid to buy the club from Mike Ashley. At the moment, as it stands, as we all know, the investment group backed by Saudi Arabia are currently undergoing the fit and proper person's test by the Premier League. <laughs> that seems to have been dragging on for two, maybe three months now with all sorts of twists and turns of its own. But now we're hearing that Henry Morris, an American television executive, has made a £350 million bid to buy Newcastle. That's actually £50 million more than the price the consortium uh, currently has bid. Um, So, Chris, what do you make of this? Because I think it's fair to say that even as I say it's being reported in the mainstream media, there does seem to be a degree of scepticism, shall we say. (laughs) um the, the fake mainstream media um yeah <laughs> the mainstream I, media that's what it was called yeah I, I don't know if you've ever bought a house or, or a flat or um perhaps a car or for a trader usually you don't offer <laughs> none of the above so now i'm questioning my <laughs> life choices as well. i'm like i've done none of these sixth above the asking price <laughs> yeah <laughs> to get it done unless you know um something is wrong i th- i think there was little known about this chap when his name first surfaced. As, as I have understood it from what I've read, he owns a company that provides TV in places like airports and hospitals. Um, mm-hmm. But I, at the same time, what I have also read is that he has had run-ins with the law in, in America, which <laughs> I believe would disqualify him from owning the club anyway. That's, I mean, we're stuck at this impasse with um, the public investment fund because of you know potential... Uh, moral legal arguments and, and everything attached to that. I, I don't even think this guy clears the first few hurdles that would take him to that stage anyway. So yeah, it's it's an odd one. Perhaps it's being used to to flush out um you know the the decision makers and, and get some kind of consensus. I ideally you would hope, I think regardless of the outcome, I've made my feelings clear, I would hope that it could be sorted before they kick off against Sheffield United at the weekend. But I think um, it may still rumble on, which is is unfortunate. I think what you're also seeing, which is rare in the context of football ownerships in in England, is a, is a real geopolitical uh, battle play out in the press, which is the WTO report, Qatar being their response, Saudi Arabia's response. It's, it's, I think it's a very 
dirty situation that the Premier League cannot avoid because it wants to sell the Premier League's rights in that region. And they know that in, I think, 2021, those rights are up for renewal. And you could potentially have two major nations that are constantly trying to outdo each other bidding for those rights. So you have to kind of keep both parties happy. But when one of them has said, look, if you allow Saudi Arabia to buy a club or the Saudi Arabian Investment Fund, we're not going to bid for the next rights. That, to me, is is a perfect um, example of the kind of, I guess, brinkmanship that is at play here because that seems like a very bold claim for a sports network to make that they will not bid for what is the most popular football league in the world. What's your instinct on it now? I mean, do you feel like it is going to go through? It isn't going to go through? I know when we did that that special podcast all about the takeover, it felt mm. coming out of that podcast, it, it was going to be impossible for this deal to go through because of all the, the complications, in my, in my mind at least. Are you feeling, are you feeling different or...? Um, well, that's the thing. I always preface it with the fact I don't have any inside knowledge um, on the situation. The, I can't see where they will potentially trip them up legally. They may deny it on moral grounds, but that will, I think, open them up to legal recourse, the Premier League, that is, from Saudi Arabia, objecting to, to being rejected. And so I think you're going to have to try and strike some middle ground with the piracy issue, with all that kind of thing. I, th- I think just before we started recording, there was a report in the in Bloomberg that had said that BN was being broadcast in cafes. Now they had stopped that block and, and that some of the be out cue boxes no longer worked anymore. Um, so I think wow. that's, that's going to be important is to see to what level Saudi Arabia are going to scale. You need to be careful. Here, what level of, effort in stopping be out queue Saudi Arabia is going to apply because they mm-hmm. maintain they have no role in it, but they need to clearly crack down on be out queue existing if that is to be the case. Mm. Well, very interesting that we have to see how it all pans out for now though. I think we're going to be back. I might get Dave on a podcast on Saturday to talk about some reaction to Tottenham, Manchester United. I should say Tottenham's defeat to Manchester United because I think that's um, that feels like how it's going to go. Um, not, not feeling too optimistic about <laughs> No, no. I mean, I know it was a friendly, etc. I know. Um, we also might try and come back on Monday as well to talk about the Merseyside derby because we've got Everton and Liverpool as well. I mean, there's so many games coming up. We'll be back on Saturday at least. So we'll see you then. For now, though, Chris, thanks so much for, for talking to us. It's been a pleasure, mate. And we'll see you guys on Saturday. See you then.